David Yoakum here. Today we're talking about administrative data. Have I hooked you yet? That's the type of data that the government's collecting day to day for all kinds of transactional reasons. Getting your driver's license, starting a business, applying for a benefit, tons of data is being generated. And increasingly, researchers, policymakers, and others are aware that this is data that might be mined for research purposes as well to inform how we're designing public policies and programs. So what are the opportunities for using administrative data? Also, what are some of the limitations and risk of misuse or data privacy issues? Today on the podcast, we're going to be joined by Amy O'Hara, who's an expert on all these issues. She spent a couple of decades at the U.S. Census Bureau, and she's currently a research professor at Georgetown University's Massive Data Institute. Welcome to 30,000 Leagues. Amy O'Hara, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. So I want to ask you about administrative data, but I do need to cover a very important issue on the right way to ask this that has to do with the plural and singular form of data. So I'm going to ask this question in two ways, and you tell me the right way to ask it. What is administrative data? Or what are administrative data? Is or are? There are camps for both, and I generally try to keep both of them happy. I typically say administrative data are, so I'm, I'm in the plural camp personally, administrative data are information points that were collected with transactions or encounters with government agencies, even private companies. They're just data that were collected to run something. What are examples? They're administrative data generated whenever you go to the doctor, administrative data generated when you pay your taxes, if your grandmother is on Medicare. There's an administrative data system because there is an agency that's making sure that they're getting the benefits or that they're adhering to the law, you know, like paying your taxes, you fill in a tax form. So the revenue agency is amassing this administrative data and they're using it for their purpose, which is money to run the state, money to run the IRS, the country. So when the data are being used for secondary purpose, when someone says, I want to use these for research, it's using the information for a purpose that it probably wasn't collected for. And so I actually want to lay on the table just more examples of administrative data, and particularly that that government has. I think Perhaps awareness is starting to increase about the types of data that Google and Apple and things like that have. Just rattle off some of the types of data that government agencies tend to have on people. Well, it's on people and also on the places, like the places they live. Property taxes and deeds, those are administrative data that have person information, but they're really about a place. And persons take part in government programs. They could take part in housing subsidies or in food stamps or in TANF, welfare. There's lots of different government programs that are generating administrative data. And then even having a library card, that's another piece of administrative data. When you think about encounters, there could be police stops, there could be court cases. So these things are coming from lots and lots of different institutions, and they're typically managed in those institutions because there's some reporting purpose that they need to maintain. Or some sort of transactional, per- you actually you actually got to pay the medical bill so you need to know what the treatment was. Right. That kind of thing. Like when you think of the electronic health records that are being generated, part of it's for clinical care. You know, you want the, the doctor to take care of you in the right way. So there are lab results, there are x-rays, and then there are doctor notes, and they're collecting all the information on your vitals. That's all going into your patient record, but then there's also a bunch of information to make sure that the hospital gets reimbursed. So there's going to be all of this other administrative data about billing. But now think of the hospital itself. It has its own administrative data on the doctors and nurses and radiologists that work there. So human resource data, that's also administrative data. Think of the hospital needing to buy the x-ray machines. So their administrative office is maintaining administrative data because they need to be buying things. They, it's, it's the purchasing. It's the accounts receivable. That's all administrative data. So there are lots of systems that are operating in the background all the time. And when you start thinking about what they've gathered, you say, wow, there's a lot of data there. So if you put all in the left hand of the room, cities, counties, states, federal government, and then on the right hand of the room, all the private firms that are out there, which side of the room has more of my data? The private I would say, by far. 
there are a lot of data points being collected on you, on all of us, because we're moving around a lot, because we carry phones, because we buy things. So every time that you're using some form of electronic payment, you're using a credit card that's generating transactions. And then think of that company. They have transactions that they're recording when they communicate with you, when you pay your bill, if you don't pay your bill. So the, the volume that's being generated through your interactions with the economy and the society, think about the number of tweets that you may have or Facebook posts, that's all administrative data for those companies to run their business for their operational needs, and they're maintaining it or monetizing it perhaps. So you've been working with administrative data for a long time. I feel this is going to be a question about it kind of feels like what was your first date? What was the what was the first administrative data set that you worked with? Do you remember? It was the IRS 1040s. What were you doing? Go big. You know, if you're if you're going to start with something, yeah, that's a pretty serious first one. data set. What were you doing? <laughs> I was working at the Census Bureau, taking survey data and trying to estimate what people would pay in taxes. So these are people that have responded to the survey about their labor force participation and what they earned. And to understand resources in poverty, one of the things the Census Bureau does is take that information and calculate what their taxes would be. And in order to do that, I was making a lot of assumptions. And I was curious as to whether my assumptions were valid. And I discovered that enduring a lot of paperwork dealing with a lot of lawyers, making sure I was doing it all above board, I would be able to match to tax data and find out if the work that I was doing could be improved. And so I found out that the assumptions that I was initially making about how various households form into tax units, you know, because when you file your taxes, it has to do with economic dependence. It doesn't necessarily have to do with the dependents, the people that you're financially taking care of. So that alignment was off 20% of the time when I looked at the actual administrative data. And it was incredibly useful because then I was able to change what I was doing to create better measures, better statistics. And just to make sure I was hearing that right, you were trying to track both the income that an individual had and the expenses they were having, if you're trying to get at ability to pay taxes, or just uh, the former? It wasn't. It, it's just the former. It's, it's considering what resources a family has. And if a family reports income to a survey, that's not the income they have at the end of the year. They have to pay taxes. So for many households, the available resources goes down after they pay their taxes. But for some, they get refundable tax credits, like the earned income tax credit. So we wanted to see, given the income amounts, are the households having less at the end of the year or some of them getting slightly more at the end of the year? And so the assumptions of how they're forming tax units was really important. This was at the Census Bureau? Mm-hmm. So, And then in order to figure out if I was doing it right, I had research partners at IRS, which was great. I always love going to the place where the administrative data are from because that's where the people really get it. They know their data and they understand it, and they were incredibly helpful and collaborative. So how would you go about figuring out what, if you're the state, mm-hmm. my income, say, well, the people in the state that would know that would have unemployment insurance data or tax data, and they are bound by state law not to look at it unless they need to, not to give it to anybody else, unless there is a purpose consistent with law. It's how pretty much every state runs. Nobody gets to look at someone's personal data without a good reason. And that's the way it should be. But from my experience doing research with these data sets, I want it to be hard, but not impossible. I want there to be a pathway that if someone really had a policy-relevant question where they wanted to look at individual income, not with your name attached, not with your social security number attached, potentially not even with your address attached, but if they needed to know that granularity, that detail, there should be an administrative path to get there. You know, there, there should be a way to jump through a lot of hoops and have a lot of visibility into what the purpose that you're using it for, but I don't believe it should be impossible. So let's unpack a little bit more on, on why, because I might be asking myself right now, 
you've got this administrative data on my unemployment insurance, my wages, so that I can pay taxes. If I do that, what other sort of reasons might you want access to that data? Uh, there may be great policy questions about ability to repay student loans, about the way that different homestead credits might affect people, whether property taxes going up and down, housing affordability. So someone may want to look at earnings to assess ability to pay. Some people may want to look at earnings to look at economic mobility. You know, are you doing better or worse than your parents' generation? What interventions could help your children have at least the standards that we expect this generation to be enjoying right now? So there are a lot of reasons that you would want to be looking at data over time or even across generations. And this is where the concept of statistical uses of data come in. Yes. Can you say a little bit more about what that is? Sure. Statistical use, I like to describe it in what it isn't. Statistical use is whenever someone's using data like your earnings and they are not using them for enforcement purposes. No one's going to come knock at your door and tell you you didn't pay for something. They are not being used for marketing. No one's going to say, oh, he seems to have the means to buy this. Let's sell it to him. And they are not going to be used for surveillance. And this is not talking about health surveillance. This is more like, let's keep an eye on David's surveillance. So statistical uses, it's where the information that is ultimately released is in an aggregate form so that it can't be traced back to you as an individual. And even in an aggregate way, like we're talking about, we release median income for everybody working on the 10th floor of this building. When you're talking about data in the aggregate, that that information can't be used to re-identify that you were in the data system that was used, and the aggregate information can't affect any benefits or privileges that you have. So even in aggregate, it can't be used to come get you for something. Why don't we, just to sort of wrap our heads around this a little bit more, give me one more example of an important use of administrative data for a statistical purpose? Well, there are tons of them. I mean, if you look at, from my experience in the federal government, you could look at what the Bureau of Justice Statistics releases, and that talks about numbers and characteristics of individuals in correctional facilities. You look at the data from the National Center for Health Statistics, another statistical agency, and they've got all kinds of information from the National Health Interview Survey. Who has coverage? What type of coverage? How has that changed over time? Who is covered? So there are lots of ways that this information about individuals can inform society and inform policy whenever it's used responsibly. What's it like to work with administrative data? And maybe to kind of set the stage on this, I imagine this is an issue with, it's a big spectrum where there's some data sets that are well-documented and great to work with, and then there's another side of the spectrum that one dares not want to think about. Which side of the spectrum do you want to start with? Tell me about the world, what it's like kind of, as you're a researcher working with administrative data, how do you approach it, what do you do? And then I want to go to the other end of the deep end also. It's hard to get, number one. So you've already encountered a lot of difficulty before you actually get the data. So I'm going to skip all of that for now. And this is assuming that you have the information, you're sitting in front of a computer terminal, and you start looking at it. It's often not documented, and so there was no code book because the people that generated the data did so because they were administering a program. They were running childcare subsidies, or they are running Medicaid. They aren't thinking about you sitting in front of that terminal needing to understand what's in the data system. So a lot of times there are documentation problems. There can also be consistency problems whenever you see something over time. In the worst case, and this is something that's kind of a relic of computers several generations ago, that storage was expensive and there weren't a lot of people that understood computers. And so they had a certain number of fields available and they would reuse a field without changing its name. And so you would have a different concept of information being captured and just overwritten. And that is something that is traditionally not recorded. You know, nobody is saying, oh, by the way, that data element that you're using isn't what you think it is. You often find that out the hard way. 
because you run an analysis and you're saying this just does not look right. How did we possibly get here? I think it's really dangerous whenever you are using a data element that you didn't understand and the results are plausible. And so it's, it's really trying to figure out, can you have a relationship with the agency that's generating this data where you can ask lots and lots of questions if you have these ambiguities? So that's kind of the good case, that you have the information, it looks pretty consistent and full. I would say the bad case, I've used some administrative data from the private sector, I will call that, and they said they have a great fill rate. That means that there weren't going to be missing values whenever you're looking at all of the different rows that you expect to have data in. And the variable I'm thinking of is telephone number. I'm like, wow, that's great. We're going to have this complete column of phone numbers. They were correct in that there weren't any blanks, but some of them were filled with all nines and some of them were filled with all zeros. So truth in advertising, yes, none of them were blank. But it wasn't until you got in there and you look at that and you run a frequency and you say, what is this nonsense? You know. So that happens a lot whenever there, there are other data problems that depending on the source, they're really good at rooting out. So date of birth, some people lie about their age and some people don't want to give you the exact detail. So there's generally a lot of people born on January 1. You know? So you might have an accurate year of birth, you might not. Some federal administrative data systems, some state administrative data systems, they're not going to tolerate that. You know, there are going to be some data elements where they need a complete and accurate date of birth. So it really depends on where you're looking at that data from. There may be some agencies where that's just not important, that your age doesn't matter with the provision of the benefits that they give. And they may collect it, but they may never look at it for, and they may not do quality assurance on all of their elements. I assume this is getting better as more and more forms and data collections are getting digitized and you can start to have kind of forced entries. Is that helping quite substantially on a lot of these woes or are there other ones popping up now? A lot of times whenever there's a record management system that doesn't let you get to the next screen, you're, you're doing data entry and you have to write something, well, people will write something, just anything to get by that requirement. So you've got to have people checking that even though it has a fill, is the fill NA for not applicable or is it a bunch of gibberish? Are you getting quality information? And if not, what is the retraining or what is the incentive that you could give to get better, complete information? I would imagine you sometimes get some interesting submissions too if someone is you get, not appreciative of what you're asking? You get lots of very interesting things. I imagine that happens less in administrative data, but definitely in the survey data world, you get some really crazy things. Sometimes you get cartoon character names. Sometimes you get obscenities. So, What's the most gnarly, difficult data set you've ever worked with? It would have been the WIC data from a state that I shall not name. What's WIC? Women, infants, and children. So this is a food security program that is administered at the state level. And the state was doing it. You know, they were making sure that babies weren't hungry and that pregnant moms were getting their benefits. And they maintained their data system. You know, so that I, I, I don't have a problem with the fact that they were running their program. It's just that when we entered a data sharing agreement with them, they delivered their data in seven different files, which isn't uncommon. There's lots of different data systems. They didn't have a unique ID. So you couldn't bridge between, say, the application data and the utilization data. It didn't have an easy way to use the data they delivered. But again, to the agreement that we had signed, they delivered what they said they would. It just was not in an immediately usable form. I've had similar challenges looking at commercial data. One time I had an expectation that I was going to get somewhere between 200 and 300 million records. And the vendor gave me more than 600 million records. Now, these were to reflect the population of the United States. And even now, there are not 600 million people resident in the US. So it's the be careful what you ask for and be careful how you ask it. But then once you get in there and you're trying to figure out, what am I looking at? What is this mess? Do you have a data entry pet peeve? Oh, I've got lots of them. What are some of them? <laughs> I think it's when systems allow people 
to add gibberish instead of an actual fill, and there's nothing that's going th- a QA that's going through and fixing that. I would also so say, if I could put like letters in the entry box for a phone number. Yes, or you can just put nonsense in. It's also whenever there is a data element that you know the agency uses, something like social security number, and when you see some records that have eight instead of nine numbers, it's like. You should have fixed this, you know, so, but it, I don't want to, to bang on the administrative agencies, but it makes me scratch my head and wonder how are they possibly using this incomplete information? But when you consider the ways that information are being gathered these days, if it's something where you can imagine someone sitting across the table from you and writing it down on a form that I could see that, oh, they missed something, or even maybe when that was being keyed, they missed something. But now that a lot of information is just being keyed directly into computers I hope to see less of those problems. But you you still have to be aware in a data system, if some of it's coming from paper that's being keyed in and some of it is coming directly, it's great to know that information. So understanding the, the how the data were generated is really important. And that brings to mind one other example of a project that you did with going back further in time with the census, back to what, 1940, trying to get the records I wasn't use? there in 1940, but yes. <laughs> Fair. Where, tell, me, tell me a little bit about that project. There are spectacular research partners at the University of Minnesota in the Minnesota Pop Center. And they have this data system. They have IPMs. So they've been curating decennial census data from the United States and from around the world. So highly recommend them. They have done lots of linkages with the earliest censuses. So I'm not sure if you're aware, a decennial census becomes public information 72 years after it's collected. Why 72? That's what they picked. That's, I think, what they expected the lifespan to be. So that if- Ah, got it. There are some of these relics. A decision gets made and it just gets carried on forward. So right now, 1940 is the earliest public census. It's, it's gone public. And the ones prior to that have already been public. And so our research partners at Minnesota Pop Center have been doing linkages, and there are some other NSF-funded projects like Martha Bailey's up at University of Michigan where they're doing linkages. There's lots of people that are doing historical census linkage. But we thought we have the means and the legal authority to match it from 1940 forward, but we didn't understand whether we were going to get sufficient matches, and whether the methods that we use in this modern age were even applicable to do a linkage across that time span. So it was a really interesting, nerdy project whenever you're thinking about what data elements are available and where you're also going to be able to observe these records. You know, are they in Social Security data? Well, Social Security didn't start until 1936, and even then it initially enrolled men working men, working men of certain occupations. So it excluded farm labor, excluded military, excluded government, excluded physicians. And these are occupations that rolled in to Social Security in later years. But it's just interesting when you think of who is in an administrative system, at what point in time, and are you able to observe them? And then think of the data quality there as well, how it's being collected, how it's being recorded, and how that holds up to the test of time. And physically, where were the data? Well, the 1940 census, they were images that had been digitized through... The paper forms. The paper forms, images of the paper forms, had already been digitized by research partners of MPC, Minnesota Pop Center. So we were very lucky to be downstream of that very labor-intensive, time-consuming process. Now, there were, it's, it's a public census, and you can look back and see, these are my family members. I know they're there. And so you can kind of cringe and say, wow, that's how that was typed, or that's what they thought their name was. But people were doing the best they could because these forms had been filled out. And whenever you're doing the character recognition, you make your best guess as to what that name was. How much potentially valuable data do you think we do have just sitting around on either paper forms or maybe they've even still been scanned, which is still not, that's still a step away from machine readable format. Correct. And I imagine 
just to build off of what you were saying about how difficult it is, how much legwork it is to go pull them out, scan them, and so on. I imagine the cost on this is probably a very high price tag. But on the other hand, perhaps the value of it makes it a no-brainer that it, as a country would be smart to invest in these types of historical conversions and use of administrative data. Right. I think there are a lot of proposals that talk about what you're going to get out of it. If we go back and we pull all of these microfilm reels, or if we pull all that microfiche, if we digitize it, we will have this goldmine of information. And it's costly because that is actually clerical work in order to convert from those archival forms into image. And then you need to have the right technology to turn the image into machine readable. So it's there are multiple steps. Each step is costly, but it's often... Once you have that information, it can be really useful. It depends who you're speaking to. There are a lot of us think that it's useful to look at trends over time or to figure out how we came to be here, where we are today. And then there are some other people that think that if we have money to spend today, we should spend it on people and things today and maybe planning for what's coming tomorrow. So it depends if you believe that it's important to have life course analyses, intergenerational analyses. So it's, it's making that case. So this actually gets into a whole other category I was wanting to talk about, which is you've got administrative data. At some point, a decision gets made to try to use it for statistical purposes, mm-hmm. to leverage it mm-hmm. for potentially different reason it was initially collected for, which is maybe expensive. It's uses that people perhaps weren't anticipating initially. How do you step into this space? And I'm actually, I'm actually thinking first of kind of the values at play here. Like who gets to decide whether to do this, how to prioritize it? How do you begin thinking about this choice? A lot of times in my federal experience, Congress thought about it for us. And so they would come along and say, we want to see this measured. And they would say to an agency, you need to tabulate your data to look at this issue. And if they didn't have all the information, they needed to do a join. You know, they needed to get administrative data from another agency and link it up. For instance, understanding income-based loan repayment. You need some data from federal student aid at the Department of Education, and you need some data on income. You can pick your poison there where you're going to get your income data, but the easiest place would be from the IRS. Now you're dealing with the administrative titans. You know, here is... Department of Ed saying, we're not going to give our data. And here is IRS saying, we're not going to give our data. So how does that happen, even if there's a requirement that you assess the joint files? So there's a lot of governance that needs to be established. There are a lot of technical controls. That's So I just oversimplified. I, I kind of went around your question. But it's an example of a lot of these administrative joins happen because someone says, I need you to measure this. And the only way to do it is via administrative data joins. But from the values perspective, what made us think that we could use the modern censuses linking to what you could think of as open data, the 1940 census, and why? And it was because we wanted to look at using the decennial censuses as outcome measures. You know, where are the subsequent generations? I have some colleagues that have written some great papers that were published looking at the Great Migration. And being able to look at it with this enormous volume of data was much more telling than earlier studies. I have colleagues that published on racial fluidity because they matched the 2000 and the 2010 census, and they were able to look at which individuals changed the way that they described themselves when they responded to what is your race and what is your ethnicity. So was that a congressional requirement? No. But did it help the Census Bureau, one, use its data very effectively, and two, answer a question that's out there, are you capturing this information correctly, and is it changing over time? Is it changing over time because individuals are saying it or because of the way that the forms are capturing it? It's, it was useful to address that measurement gap. And do you think, I mean, I guess partly what I'm eyeballing on this is there's a lot of potential benefits for certain statistical uses of administrative data. Mm -hmm. There's also a risk that if you don't get the transparency and the politics of this right, 
people, probably with a lot of justification and rightly so, would be upset to learn about how their data was being used if they weren't adequately informed about it and had opportunities to raise concerns. And this could be true even if you kind of think about the counterfactual where you are transparent about, everybody talks through it and says, like, fine. If you don't go through that process, they might say, not fine. And it reflects bad process. And so I don't know if you have reflections or seen examples of places where it's been done well, where it's been done bad, or kind of how you think about this transparency requirement and all the legwork it takes to do that versus, you know, getting to the administrative data statistical uses faster. I think that a lot of the successful linkage projects happen because somebody in, and I've seen this frequently in state government, is asked the question, how many of our state residents are on this program and that program? How many of them are on Medicaid and food stamps? And they turn to their advisors and their advisors shrug because those data aren't automatically joined. Those are at least within Health and Human Services. Pick another example, who is formerly incarcerated that is now on Medicaid? Well, those are definitely two different silos in government. And to answer that question, you would really need a lot of legal wrangling to get data access and do the join. Is that a useful thing to know? Well, I think that there are some people in the state administration that would say, yes, I want to understand where our dollars are going. I want to understand if there are different interventions that could be made. The same could be said of vital records. You know, looking at the health of communities and of a state's population. The other vital records are death records. There are a lot of public health studies where it's really essential not just to know whether or not someone has died, but in the cause and manner of death as well. You know, so what killed them? So these are really important things to understand health equity. You know, is there care available to all segments of the population? Is it being constrained for some groups and not others? Because there are a lot of public resources that go into these things. So I think that there is often an overall efficiency argument. We want to understand the best way to spend these scarce state resources. So we need to understand whenever there are individuals that are using multiple programs or could be using them. And on the other side of the coin here, I've often also had the experience of people being surprised that data isn't talking to each other. You know, if you're just thinking of like, there's government out there and, you know, I just gave my information to this department and I walk across the street and I've got to give it again to this other department. Like, what are you, what are y'all doing? And not realizing just how siloed the systems are. And it's a constant, I mean, I don't know why I'm surprised about the siloing anymore, but it never ceases to amaze me either, just how split many of these systems are. When I was at Census, we had a panel of questions on the Gallup poll, whether people really kind of understood what administrative data were, whether they had trust in government. So it was questions like that. And every time, and even when other survey organizations ask the question, people assume that if you give your government data to one government agency, that everybody has it. And as you just said, the silos are so strong, so rigid. And this brings up the issue of, of linkage. And maybe let's, let's slow down here for half a second and explain what data linkage is. For, for folks who haven't done it before? It's where you're looking at list one and list two and trying to assess whether the same entity, the same individual is present in both lists. You could also just look at list one and look for duplicates. You know, is that individual in there again and again and again? So you're looking at certain pieces of information. And at the person level, you're looking for these identifiers. You're looking for name. You're looking for date of birth. You may be looking at social security number. You're looking at address. You may be looking at telephone number. But you're trying to find these pieces of information that allow you to uniquely identify that you've got the same individual in list one and list two or multiple times in list one. So maybe you got a list of license plates over here and then a list of traffic tickets from another agency and you want to ask whether Amy owns this car and had this many tickets. I'm not saying you get a lot of tickets, but who knows? <laughs> yes. That kind of thing. Yes. Well, it's assuming that the information has enough information has been collected in both systems that would enable this. And so what are the types of options for how you can link data? If you have really clean, complete information, you can do exact linkages. You know, if there was a social security number here in this Medicare file 
and social security numbers over here in this tax file, then you would be able to do a, you know, sort and merge, you know, find the same ones in both lists. Where it gets trickier is where there isn't that unique ID and also where the data systems didn't require some sort of verification that my name is Amy O'Hara, whether I gave a nickname, whether I withheld part of my name. My even name, how you spell it, I would assume. Yes. Did you do the apostrophe? Was it an O? I was just going to say that. <laughs> so there are some systems that have my middle initial as O and my last name is Hera. And that is problematic because then I'm Amy O'Hara in one file and Amy Hera in another file. So that brings me to the alternative to the exact matching, which is probabilistic matching. It allows for a little bit of fuzziness. So you're saying, did something just drop off or has there been a little bit of reporting error perhaps? This has its limitations, obviously, if you can't identify that, you know, maybe Bill and William go together, but some people may use a very different nickname than the given name that you think that you're looking for. It also doesn't help whenever somebody lies about their age. You know, so how much of that information needs to corroborate between the two lists that you believe that you've observed the same entity? And the way you track the fuzziness, is it often by looking at other sorts of variables? So like if there's an O'Hara and then a Hera with O middle name, but they both live in the same street, we're going to make an inference that's mm -hmm. the same person. You have enough other pieces of information that do match above the level that you, you're, you're setting what that match-non-match -match parameter is looking like. So I imagine there are some folks that just because of the, the name they have, if you're John Smith or if you have a long, wild last name yes. that moves around, that, things like that could make it so that you're potentially more prone to having errors in your administrative data? Well, it's going to be errors in potentially in the administrative data, but also errors in the match. Because if there's somebody that has a really common name, you might not have what you think of as a match that you're confident in. And so you may say, well, we're not even going to consider that a match. That's very different than not finding a match between two lists because the individual's not in both lists. So this is something where you need to understand the bias inherent in those data so that you get a, a good sense of what's going on with your match results. So is this why social security numbers, my granddad, Beepaw, thought that if your social security number was shared, it was like giving out the keys to the whole kingdom and your ID and everything would definitely be stolen. Is this partly why social security numbers are considered so sensitive just because? They are in this country. But when you look at other countries, when they hear about the, you know, the acrobatics that we do in the U.S. to do person-level matching, they just kind of are befuddled because in their country, there isn't the you know, stigma with people knowing their social insurance number. That's what many of them call their SSN or their national health service number. If you're looking at the UK. You just mean in other countries, it's just not a big deal to it's be not a private big deal. about that. And so you have that number. And even if there's some noise in that number, then you have name to fall back on. But in the U.S., if you're not starting with social security number, you're really reliant on name and date of birth to try to figure out if you've got the right entity. Why do you think there's that cross-country difference in approach to SSN? I think it has some to do with the, the culture, the way that other countries tend to trust their government more than the United States ever has. And also the types and levels of fraud that became prevalent in the United States in terms of identity theft and someone got my social, so then they opened up all of these accounts and now I've got this big mess. I've got creditors calling me. Were there more fast-acting, inventive criminals in the United States? I think that would be a great question to answer. What's the difference between thinking about the security of data and data privacy? I want to play around yeah. with both of these. Uh, a lot of people lump them together, but when I think of data security, I want to make sure that whoever has the data is preventing unauthorized access. That means that they're keeping it secure. They have it encrypted. They have it on a server that has very tight access controls, things like that. 
to me, those are security issues. And there can still be problems there. People could hack in. There could be insider threats that somebody that you had trusted to be using the data actually is a bad actor. But that is different than privacy. Now, at the highest level, privacy is there's some information about me that I may not want to share with you. So you could ask me questions that I think are intrusive and you are, you know, that's affecting my privacy. In terms of data privacy, it's making sure that, at least in my, my former federal career, that you're only asking for the information that you need so that you're being respectful of that individual's privacy. And that leads you to confidentiality. So we only collected what we needed and we're keeping it confidential. So we're not doing any onward sharing and the act of keeping it, we're keeping it securely. So that brings in the IT security element of it as well. But when you think of data privacy more broadly, I think that the private sector, your left room, right room example that you, you started with, that they seem to have taken notions of privacy and have a lot of people have their people have their guard up in a way that they think about data and privacy. You know, what is Facebook doing with your data? What is Google doing with your search history? What is Apple doing with the information that when you talk to Siri, what is Alexa doing? What is happening with all of that information? Our notions of privacy can be shaped a lot by what's happening in the private sector and also observing what's happening in Europe, like looking at GDPR. So what are other countries looking at when they think about privacy? Then you think about administrative data and it was collected for certain purposes and it's joins on that also have privacy implications. But to me, they feel a lot different than the privacy implications whenever you're looking at what Apple is doing. I mean, this is one where the terms privacy and confidentiality get slippery in everyday language that if you keep them clear, maybe helps here, which is at least the way I usually think about it in a more precise sense is confidentiality is a place where someone has some sort of data or information about me, but their assurance is it's not going to be used or shared in certain ways. Mm -hmm. Privacy is there's nothing being observed in the first place about me or being collected about me, which is where if you think about Alexa or iPhones and people knowing in some sense that, you know, when they're typing in searches in Google, they know that Google's searching it and maybe they think it's going to be confidential and not shared further. But if it also turned out that their iPhone was periodically taking audio samples and then they know it and recording it, that's a privacy implication of, I didn't even know you were collecting that in the first place. And that seems to be, that distinction seems to be getting blurred in a lot of the private spaces in a way that with administrative data and government, it's like, oh, you know, there's a form. Yeah. But even that's changing. I mean, with body cameras and surveillance images and things like that coming up, that's now administrative data that could potentially get used for other reasons as well. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's a, how are you going to interact in this world? Is just walking down the street, is that a willful disclosure? Are you being observed? Can you do anything about that? What are you going to do? Are you going to wear a stocking mask on your face? It's interesting to think about who is capturing the information? And even as you were saying about confidentiality, thinking of that from the private sector perspective, that it's only going to be used for the things that you agree to. Well, did you read the consent on anything? On the app that you downloaded, on your credit card application, on anything? So what have you already consented to? There are a bunch of people studying that, and it's interesting, but I don't know how you would change the hearts and minds and behaviors of people so that they are really on top of what they're consenting to. Yeah, and that's a, that's a place where there have been some experiments showing that. Yes. And everybody jokes about not reading the terms of conditions, but I forget who did one where there was a term that was you had to like sell your soul yes. to the person afterwards, <laughs> and like eight, 90% of people just click through it like it was nothing. Like, nobody reads these things. And there's also the studies uh, that if this app is free, if you don't want at like what yeah. are you willing to give up? It's like some people equate that to the the price of your privacy, but it's people aren't thinking about it in that way. Do you think we're conceding ground here too quickly? By which I mean, like I sometimes have conversations with folks that are like, well, you know, it's Google, it's Facebook, they're collecting all this stuff, what can you do? To which I sometimes have the flash thought that you could make it, you know, a hundred year prison sentence for the CEO of this company if they were collecting a type of data that there was a law against doing it. Mm -hmm. I bet that would stop it pretty fast. 
What do you think? Well, there are also conversations about, well, it's my information. And this is private sector. So there, I want to draw kind of a, a sharp line here between I am a compliant taxpayer. I had to provide information to the IRS. I know I gave it to them, and I accept that it is their data to do what they need to do with it. However, on the private sector side, this is where you say, well, that's really my information. And I'm letting them use it for some of their marketing purposes, you know, revenue generating purposes. So how do individuals reclaim control over that information? And there's some interesting academic discussion happening on that. But I'm curious to see what the take up would be. You know, how many people really want to be in charge of all of their own data? I think the closest practical steps we're seeing here have to do with patient records. So there's a difference between an electronic health record and a patient record. So this is where I could log in and see my information. If I went to that general practitioner or that specialist or I had that lab test done, this is where that information is available to me. And in the past, that wasn't so. And so that's hopefully allowing people to have more control over that and also make better decisions, ask different questions, or at least feel that they have some right to that information. But don't miss the fact that it's also still in your electronic health record so that arguably the hospital system can do its research and use the data in ways that they believe are consistent with the consent that they have. And that's another place where the left-hand government side, right-hand private side cuts is just the ability to have more transparent access into how the data is being used and generated, even if you ultimately disagree with it, having some sort of ability to have that conversation and voice protest if you wanted to is more, much more often a black box on the private side. Yes. Hmm. And I don't know what would happen to change that. Because I think that we observed with Cambridge Analytica, you have people voting with their feet. Well, I'll just jump off of that platform. It's like, well, you're probably going to join the next platform, or you went back to that platform. People quitting Twitter. There aren't demands of greater transparency or these new tools and methodologies that allow you to kind of reclaim some ownership or something. It's more kind of knee-jerk mm -hmm. from, it, that's my read of the situation. And what it also think? tips back into, well, I mean, and people also get a lot of Many people get a lot of value out of a lot of the yes. services that are doing this data collection, whether it's helping them navigate to transport around more, whether it's some of the social media things, a lot of people like that stuff, mm -hmm. which is why, you know, whenever there are a Cambridge Analytics scandal and everybody like deletes their apps and everything like that, and then a big portion of them two weeks later go back to it. Right. Never really, I mean, it's always a little bit hard to know how much of that is kind of just feeling the pull back in for the the social pressure of it and addiction of it versus really, really enriching your life a lot. But it hap it keeps happening. But the wild thing is, do you, we don't know how many of them left and came back. Mm -hmm. you know? Right, right. That's because it's private sector data. But if somebody wanted to understand the way that some policy change has people in or out of different administrative systems, it's there because that's easier to at least make a claim. Like, what are the statistics out of administrative data I believe, are at least attainable, whereas accurate, even these operational statistics out of private sector are much harder. So this makes me think about who should be actually holding the data and working with it. I mean, in a lot of government settings, it's not uncommon to contract out these types of services, to have data go live on someone else's servers. How do you approach thinking about whether statistical uses of administrative data with all the benefits they promise in the public sector, should these be in-house government capacities? Should they be getting outsourced to other vendors? How do you think about it? I think that, well, in the federal space, there are a ton of requirements that any service provider needs to meet. So I think somebody that jumps through all of those hoops, they're a viable service provider. And I think that this has been exhibited after the Affordable Care Act, that there are a bunch of cloud service providers working with CMS data, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. So I think that it's it's been proven that this can happen, and it can happen in an okay way. But the bigger question that you're asking is, who should do it? Should there be the capacity built within each agency? Or should there be some thought to how that could be facilitated or even handled in a, a third place, a trusted place? The 
Commission for Evidence-Based Policymaking was this group that came out with these recommendations on how administrative data could and should be used to inform policy, to have better data-driven decision-making. So their report came out a couple years ago, and then just this past January, there was a law passed called the Foundations for Evidence-Based Policymaking Act of 2019. And there's some of us that are very excited that that happened. So that's going to be a step in the direction of having chief data officers and chief evaluation officers and learning agendas. And hopefully it's going to get us toward progress on some of the other recommendations. It was a bipartisan committee that came out with these. And one of them was that there should be a national secure data service. And so that would be this organization that helps agencies use their data more efficiently. So it would help with the normalization, it would help with the data cleaning, it would help with the linkage, it would help with the safe provisioning, getting the data from place A to place B so that the right statistics could be made. And it would all be done under the statistical use umbrella that I stressed before, so that none of the data would then be used for enforcement or marketing or surveillance. So I think that that's something that's that's out there. It's Still too early to know if there are going to be steps to get there. But even this past week, the administration released more detail on the federal data strategy. So it's great to see the feds getting into the space where they're saying, we're taking this seriously. We want to move ahead responsibly. We want to move ahead efficiently. Do you think there's going to be more money put behind it? I would hope so. But it's not going to happen if that money never materializes. I think that what I would be sad to see would be this directive that agencies need to do more of this work without funding. And then they would need to cannibalize some other program in order to meet that mandate. So nobody likes to see that happen either at the federal level or the state level. And everything we're talking about, just to be explicit about it, also plays out in smaller cities and counties where there's a lot of opportunity there as well. It seems like one of the, I mean, there's a suite of challenges in leveraging administrative data at the, at the more local level. To pick one of them, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on, again, the, the people, like having the, the capacity where you're already, even where you have sometimes folks that, are, that could do this type of work, they're stretched in so many different directions, there's so many, so many things. How do you think about the kind of core capacity problem of, of having the right people in the right places to do the right things with the data? That is a, just a huge issue. Again, at any level that you're talking about, city, county, state, fed, there are these constraints that either you don't have the right skill set in-house or the person with the right skill set, they're already, they've got a full plate. They are completely, if not over-utilized in their, in their role. And so how do you deal with that without additional budget? So are there efficiencies? Are there best practices? Is there some pooled effort that you could have across different jurisdictions? And there are some great models where that's working in terms of learning communities so that the counties hear what similar counties are doing in terms of data integration. And that's a great step forward. A lot of that learning is about the governance process and getting buy-in. Some of it is about, well, this is how we do our linkage, or this is what we've done for data archiving or something. So that exists at small scale, but how do you bring it to a broader audience? And I often look at it as it's a, if you're going to do it at the state level, you got 50 of them. Some of them are very advanced and some of them are not. So where are you going to, where are you going to put your dollars? You're not probably going to have enough dollars to get everybody up to the level of the most sophisticated. Then you look at this at counties, there's more than 3000 counties. So what are you going to do there? Or even if you look at higher ed institutions, there are tens of thousands. Of like you get into these massive numbers of institutions that you're thinking, how on earth are we going to come up with common schema, common practice, standards, et cetera? And why would people do it if there's no enforcement mechanism? So how do we get to the greener pastures? How do you think we get to the greener pastures? I think that as more states, as more counties are using their data, they are not only having a better sense of what's going on within their boundary, but they're turning that into this actionable information. And 
it might not cause more dollars to appear at the door, but they might have cost avoidance. And so I think that as more data are integrated, you're beginning to see the real payoff to knowing more. It might be understanding how to have interventions that put off these you know, very expensive effects whenever, say, a child reaches 18 and is aging out of a lot of different programs. What should you do then? you know, instead of just letting people fall through the cracks. So it has both societal benefit, but also really good fiscal measures. If you're capturing the information and showing it to people like, wow, you link the data and these good things happens and these good things happened. And that's always been my experience too with colleagues and frankly, even just personally, that if your compass is around really what you can do with the data that's benefiting your communities, your neighborhoods, that's just much more motivating than starting from a abstract conversation about like, wouldn't it be great if there was someone who could figure out how to spend a whole lot of time and effort getting all these data clean and tidy and linked? Like nobody wants to do that. Everybody wants to do the work with it. So I I love it when people talk about we want to do the work with it because we have these questions that we haven't been able to answer. I think what had scared me a little bit over, I don't know, probably more than five years ago is when it started, is this, you know, wave of visualization and isn't it neat what can be done? And if we only had more data, we would be able to put more colors in this gorgeous animated visualization. And I agree, they're, they're, they're lovely. It's like eye candy, right? But using data for the sake of using data, I don't think you're ever gonna have a real clear win at the end of that day. If you're doing a visualization because it's the best way to present this really important work that you did, yes, I am all for it. But if it's just, well, we needed more data because we're looking at it, it's, it's like the worst of data mining to me. It is amazing how quickly and hard a data dashboard can displace thinking if you're not yes. careful. Yes. <laughs> just because it is numbers up there and everyone looks at it, feels cool, and choices don't change. Right. But if we're also, if we're, if we're adding to the list of things that I don't like, it's when people have access to data, they're forming their questions based on the data they have access to. Mm-hmm. So this is the, I'm looking under that street lamp for my keys because I lost my keys. So I believe that people should have policy relevant questions. They should think about how to answer them and then they should pursue data to do so. And you might not always have the exact data set. You might have another one that signals what you are looking for. Use that. But don't start with the data and poke around in the data until you've come up with a good question to answer. And this is, I mean, it's a great point. It's one that plays into what I think of as the importance of the types of research teams that are putting, that are getting put together and the value of having practitioners, decision makers, people who are ultimately getting affected by whatever the research is going to be with the scientists, because if you're just getting an administrative data set by yourself over in some other place and not having the conversation with the frontline focus, it's, you're kind of restricted almost by necessity. It's very easy to slip into just doing things with the data mm-hmm. and not being in a position to think more deeply about what's really needed here in the first place. Right. There's a, another thing that I'll give, you one of my, I'll give you one of my pet peeves. Try this on for size. I'm curious what you think about it. And I'm going to stretch a concept in the law that's it's called estoppel. It's basically, there's like some things that you couldn't be held liable or negligible for or something like that. But if you take another action first, you potentially can. So like the example I think about this is that in most places, there's not an affirmative duty to help someone if you saw them you know, bleeding out on the street. Like you should if you're a nice person. But if you don't do it, you wouldn't get sued and held liable for it. On the other hand, if you ran up to that person and said, nobody called 911, I got this. And then you didn't actually help them. The defense of like, I had no affirmative duty is stopped. So like if you take some sort of action and say you're going to do something and then you don't do it, you can hold, be held liable in a different way. And so I see a tendency where if you're kind of sitting on the data or you get the data, you, you call everyone else off as thinking this is yours to get. And in some sense, potentially it is. But it runs into the problem where if you don't have enough capacity to ever get to it, mm-hmm. then nobody ever does the work. And so if places are being kind of turfy about the, the data in this place, then the work doesn't ever get, doesn't get done. I don't know if you've seen this elsewhere. I've often wanted to just label it like data estoppel so that when it happens, we have a word to call it out. I worry a bit about this happening in universities 
where there is a huge incentive to be answering new questions, publishing with different data, and some academics will go and seek out administrative data for their use. And they will spend a lot of time and effort improving it, you know, recoding it, understanding it, and then it's their data that they will create lots and lots of publications. And that is what the incentives are set up for that to happen. Is that the best outcome? I would like to see that academic get credit when others reuse the data that they've now beaten into shape. So could that data have a digital object identifier attached to it so that every subsequent use is like, I am really glad that she spent the time to make this data because now it's enabled all of these other things. What sort of incentive structure would help there? That it would help if publishers required that the data infrastructures that don't have a really good path of access to get to them. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. I agree. If there is a world in which you could have you know, citations and a way of getting credit to track back to the serious muscle and effort that it takes to create a, a data set. That seems like a very sensible thing. That would thing. be a better world, right? Because right now the incentive is for an individual to really get their data shaped up and then yeah. to use it. We have a bell here too. That's like at the Where state do we house. Get to go? <laughs> we were at the state house earlier and there's a bell. You hear a bell, right? I do hear a bell. Uh, not a long lasting Not a long bell. one. So we have smaller meetings here than the legislative one. The other thing that comes to my mind here is like patent law. Like, I mean, is there, do you actually want to incentivize it enough to where you give someone, you know, two years of free reign to do whatever they want with the data? And then after that, it's got to go open and generic. I think that some government agencies do that do exactly that, that they are giving their staff kind of first crack because... Functionally, you mean they're doing this. Yes, right. And I don't know how that would work on a broader scale. I just think that a lot of having worked in the federal space for a long time and now being on the outside and trying to take more of a state-local focus at data, I'm doing that because as a Fed, I saw that all the action was happening down on the ground where these programs are being administered. And if you want to have better data coming, get it changed at the point of generation, get the people in the agencies to care about data quality, to care about their data, to see why it's important. So I think that that might be for the academic angle on it, but where most of useful administrative data are coming from, I don't see the need for that because I would love to see the data being joined and put to better use for the people that live in these places, you know, for communities, for society. And then if it also has this great publishable work to be done, that's great. But I don't think that that should be driving decisions to join administrative data sets. I think that there are so many challenges within, say, state government that they need to understand the power of using the data and then think later who else do we want to use it and for what purpose if they're going to go publish on it? And then you need your patents. Yeah. Well, and I agree with you. I mean, like I said, this data estoppel concept of trying to come up with a name with is because of annoyance on that. But on the other hand, if it if you do have an incentives problem on folks doing the hard work, in the same way that I would prefer if most pharmaceuticals were made cheap and freely available, we at least have a certain industries. We don't do that. We let patents come into place to try to get over the hurdle of who's going to invest in the initial effort. Right. Well, what are you most excited about that's coming down the down the pipe over the next however many years you want to pick? Oh, there are so many things to be excited about. I think that the conversations that I've had with the states, the locals, the cities, the counties, and their enthusiasm and outlook for more intensively using their data, that is just so encouraging. And the fact that they're irritated and asking questions about, why don't I have a data lab near me? Why is it so hard to link with the feds? They're starting to get a little pushy. And I think that that's great, that I want them to think that they're the ones with the data, with the questions, with the things that matter, and to, again, learning from each other. I think that it's also an interesting age where not all organizations are trying to run their own 
data farms, you know, server farms, there are a lot of blank as a service, platform as a service, software as a service, infrastructure as a service, and that may make it easier for the states or the cities or the counties to get their data shaped up and potentially be interoperable across different operating units like Department of Health and Human Services and Department of Justice, Department of Workforce, Department of Education. So I think that there's a lot of interest in understanding this interplay and that will play itself out. Now on the the nerdier side, I am really excited. And these are things that are not coming in the next couple of years, but I'm excited by things like secure multi-party computation and different ways of encrypted data analysis. And I'm excited by advances in differential privacy. So I think that there are a lot of really interesting technical, so these are mathematicians and computer scientists coming up with these innovations to better protect data privacy. Those are going to be rolling out. And these are things that have been studied over some decades, but we didn't have the computational power to really use them. And now it's, it's getting there. Amy O'Hara, thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you for listening to 30,000 Leagues. We hope you enjoyed today's deep dive. This episode was hosted by David Joachim and produced by Jessica Davison, Molly Cook, and Mitchell Johnson. Find more conversations on 30,000leagues.com and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Keep calm and narwhal on. Perfect. We obviously can't do anything with her responding because she's not here. You're welcome. It's been my favorite experience ever.